Jenny Pot is a writer, literary translator, book critic, and the host of the Daisy Books podcast. Her debut collection, Each of Us Killers, was out in 2020 and won a Forward Indies Award in the Short Stories category and was a finalist in the Multicultural category. Her debut literary translation, Ratnodoli, The Best Stories of Tumketu, was also out in 2020 and has been longlisted for the PFC Valley of Words Award in the English Translation category. She teaches at writing workshops in Dallas. To learn more about her work, go to JennyPuttWriter.com. Jenny Bott, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mia. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, so we're speaking on the occasion, you've recently, well, in 2020, you came out with your debut collection, short stories, which are absolutely fascinating. And how poignant that it came out in a year when we were all reconsidering our working life and redefining and just adapting. But to give, you know, your collection, Each of Us Killers, to give a little introduction to people, are you going to read from us the title story? Yes, I will read just a couple minutes or so from the title story. And as you said, all the stories are centered around working lives. Each of the main characters has some issue related to their workplace. In this case, we have the scene is starts off in a rural Indian village. A week after the protests in Una, when Vishal Parmar drank a bottle of acid and killed himself. Even the police could not be bothered to find their way to our tiny village of Sakarpada. If you are traveling along the Kodinar Amreli Highway on a rare day, clear of the smoke exhausting out of rattling trucks, tempo vans and motorcycles, you might glimpse us hidden between the farthest fields. But you might also simply drive on by, unknowing, and unseeing. We are so distant from all major roads, there is not even a sign pointing in our direction. This anonymity doesn't bother us. Our few Dalit families have served in the fields of the upper caste families from before the Maratha cowards gave our state away to the British bastards. Unlike all of them, we have always honored the long time invisible borders, keeping us to our side of the village and the upper castes to theirs, until the recent tragic events. And our panchayat leaders are descended from long lines of punch people themselves, so we do not need any outsiders to tell us how to manage these affairs. On a wet August afternoon, when such an outsider quietly shows up at Premji's tea and Kirana shop, It makes us as restless as the marshland frogs jumping around in the downpour. Some say the stranger is a court officer from Una. There is talk of him being a big politician's son, come to talk about the upcoming district elections. Finally, someone suggests he's a reporter with an Ahmedabad newspaper. It's like when a film star's car had lost its way somehow and punctured all four tires near the dry bed of our old river. Except that had been a happier time and we had all been innocent as young brides. I'll stop there. That's just the opening with a stranger coming into town. 
And so the complexity and details are just wonderful there and the sounds and just this rich world. And I know, yes, it's a much more complex story. Just tell us a little bit about it and what inspired you to write it because it's it's based on real events. Correct. Yeah. So in mid-2014, late 2014, when I had just moved back to India and there had been a lot of protests and uprisings by lower caste, the Dalit communities in Gujarat, against some of the violence and issues being perpetrated by the upper caste folks. And in one such incident, what had happened was that in addition to the protests, several young Dalit men, as part of their protest, had taken to drinking acid and committing suicide. And that was just horrific to me that somebody would just take their own life in protest, that they felt that it was better to die than to live that way. And this was happening across the state to the point that the state minister had to declare a a state emergency within the whole state. And I happened to be traveling to another part of the state and there was this um, village on the way And we stopped there and they had a young man who had done this, who had, you know, swallowed acid and killed himself as part of the protest. And so I wanted to know more about it. And I positioned myself as a journalist, because when you say writer, people don't quite know what does that mean? But journalists, you know, if you're working for a newspaper, they know that. So I positioned myself as a journalist and they invited me and had me sit down. And what was most striking to me was that as I was asking questions, obviously only the most elderly people were responding, but even when you had one or two people within the group of men who were sitting around me, it was this collective voice. They would always speak in that collective voice. And and then there were things that they were not saying, they would not answer my questions directly. And I could tell they felt like, you know, what is this going to do? Is she going to write this in some newspaper? And then are we going to have unwelcome visitors? I knew they felt it was an intrusion. I could tell they knew it was an intrusion and my heart just went out to them. Now the climactic scene that I have in this story, that's completely made up. That didn't actually happen in the story. But for me, what was most interesting was that crowd dynamic, right? And and I debated a long time about whether I should even write this story because I am myself an upper caste person. I'm not a lower caste person. And so in a way I felt, am I doing some sort of cultural appropriation But on the other hand, I thought, well, if my main character in the story is a journalist and if I'm approaching it from that point of view. So while the voice is the voice of the crowd, the point of view is the journalists. We only see as much as the journalist is seeing, you know. So I thought, well, then I'm writing it from the journalist's point of view and I'm not appropriating the voice of the victim or somebody who's directly involved. But I felt that all all the newspapers at the time and the media kept reporting about the conflict in such sensationalized ways, because of course they have to get their, you know, ad revenue and all that. And I just felt that we weren't getting that personal story. We weren't getting that go below the layers and understand what is it done to the community as a whole. And so that's really why I wrote the story. 
I'd like to go into that a little bit. There are quite a few things that have really fascinated if you could unpack. One, it's you you pointed out the the collective voice in an individual, which having now lived in America for a number of years and before you went back to India, in America, I can't imagine many people making that sacrifice out of the pride of protesting by swallowing acid. This is something that's hard to conceptualize, say, in America. But then in India, you notice the responses of the collective voice. And so I would love to go into that contrast. And then the other thing, just to explain really what the background is, I do want to go into that too, because the title is so provocative, Each of Us Killers. And it makes me just think about those who don't live a vegan lifestyle, even just metaphorically, we right. are killers that relating to that. Right. Yeah. So I'll come to your second question first, uh, which is about the community and, and what is the, the main issue here. The cow in India is a sacred animal in, in the Hindu community. And generally what happens is upper caste people, they worship the cow, but they also, as part of their religion, will not touch an animal's carcass. So the lower caste communities, these Dalit folks, Dalit meaning the untouchables, as they used to be once upon a time, and still are in rural areas. They're the ones who will take these animal carcasses, dispose of them, skin them for leather or whatever. So they're the ones who do the dirty work that nobody else wants to do. Now, the real incident that happened in India that kicked off these protests was that four young Dalit men had been found skinning a dead cow. Now, they claimed that the cow was already dead when they began the skinning job, which was their work. But this group of upper caste young men accused them of actually killing the cow before skinning it. And they publicly had these four young men, the lower caste men, stripped and flogged publicly. And then there was a video that circulated almost throughout the whole of the country, of this flogging. These four young lower caste men being uh, stripped and flogged by these upper caste men for allegedly having killed a cow, which is a terrible thing you, in, in a country like India, having killed the cow and skinned it. And that the protest therefore by the lower caste community was against this violence inflicted on these four young men. That's something that that kind of conflict between the upper caste and the lower caste continues. It's still an ongoing thing. And it manifests in a lot of ways. It will manifest in ways beyond flogging where the lower caste people will be driven off their land or will not find jobs or will you know, not be allowed to go into certain places. I mean, that sort of thing still goes on. So that's a big deal as much as the government tries to say, no, we shouldn't, people use religion for all kinds of things. So that's the one thing. And then to your point about the collective versus the individual. Uh, yes, I mean, I would say that, especially in rural parts of India, the community is very important. You're either in or out of a community. Your position in a community, your standing in a community, how you support your community, all of this becomes very important because they don't like to then rely on, on the outside world as much because they're pretty secluded. And with minority uh, communities like these, 
because they don't get as much support as you might hope or want, want them to, they rely on their community a lot more. And so they close ranks. When something like this happens, they will close ranks because they want to protect their own. And that's a very natural behavior, I would say, of any community. But yes, you're right, in the Western world, that is not the case. We're very much about the individual. And so for me, having grown up, I was born and raised in India. I left at the age of 19. And then, as I said, I went back uh, in mid-2014. So I've been away more than two decades. And clearly, my coming of age was more in the West. And even in India, I grew up in, in a major city like Bombay. So uh, for me, when I moved back and I experienced all of this that was going on in the rural communities where I spent a lot more of my time because I was doing some other research for some other work. It was quite an eye-opening, educational, humbling experience about the community and the dynamics of, of communities like that. I just like the whole, the title of the the collection there are many different ways to, to take it but on that particular story I thought about how we our culpability and whether mm. um, we're thinking about it now because of um, you know and that's the last line of that story that's how the title came about it is the last line where the the whole community is thinking that we're all killers we're all killers and in, in some way or other we're killing each other's finer instincts or we're killing something within ourselves but we're all killing something every day. And it's not just about this cow. You know, that's not something they said. As I was writing, it came to me. And sometimes people don't have to say the words out loud, but you can feel that that's what they're communicating. And I felt that the death of that young man who swallowed acid, as many other young men did across the country in protest, killed something within the community as well. It wasn't just the death of the man, and that was tragic enough, but I think something died for that community within their own ranks, whether it was their sense of being able to do something for themselves or just their sense of well-being as a community. You can be responsible by just standing by and not doing things. And I do think about that line in the Oscar Wilde poem, each man kills the thing he loves. Yes. There's so many different deaths. It's not just the final one. So overall, it's just an amazing collection that brings in so many different, well, work experiences, but also, as you observed, work experiences that haven't been touched on so much in fiction. Yeah, for me, my work, my job was the biggest part of my identity for the longest time. I worked in corporate America. Before that, I worked in the U UK and Europe. I wasn't married and I didn't have children. So when it came to my public identity, it was about what I did for a living. And I've always felt people talk about the work life, the line between your work and your life and keep them separate and keep a balance. And for me, it's always been, but my work defines who I am and who I am in my personal life also defines who I am at my workplace. And I don't know how you separate those identities because I take all my belief systems and who I am to my workplace, right? And so when I left my corporate job to turn to full-time writing, I felt unmoored. I felt like I, I'd suddenly lost that identity. I was in that transitional phase where I was still trying to write and figure my way out and I hadn't got a book published or anything. And 
I began to think a lot more about what does work mean to us? How does our work shape who we are? How do the defining moments that happen within our work, within our working lives, shape who we are as individuals? And also when I write fiction, a lot of times my way into a character is through what they do for a living. It's my way of getting to know that person and, and write about them. So I hadn't planned on a collection that was to do with centering on working lives. I mean, I didn't even know I'd have a collection, to be honest. I was writing short stories. I was getting them published in literary magazines. And it was only in 2017 when I realized, okay, I've now got a whole bunch of stories and they're all about working people oh, well, maybe I have a collection. So it wasn't by design. And in fact, the first version of this book that I started to query, I hadn't even positioned it that way, that this is a collection about working lives. I just said, this is a collection of stories about people from India. And unfortunately, that was too generic. So I know that a lot of the responses I got were like, oh, this is good writing, but uh, no. And it was only when I then repackaged it and said, this is about working lives. And well, two things. Yeah, I completely define myself too as an artist and writer. I don't find enough time for it. As you know, running a podcast and having a publication, I'm so bound up with what I do. And luckily, I think that those of us who are artists, that's quite close to, it has an emotional experience. It is work. It's not, it's not all fun. That's the other thing. Well, it's fun, but it's still labor, right? And so I couldn't take that out of my life and just say, I don't know who, who I am when I'm at home. I'm always doing something like that. So it seems to me completely uh, logical and intuitive that working lives is where we define ourselves. I think in America too, it's a huge part. In France, where I live, maybe it's a little bit less so or the amount of time that you give towards your personal life. It's more acceptable that you're not exactly what you're vocation is. But I'm just curious what that is like, at the, because the transition from working at this corporate life, you've had many different roles, you've traveled many different locations, and the courage it takes to say this, you define yourself as like this hobby of writing to make that the center of your life where you'd always put it to the side, sort of. And, and what that's like to do when you turned 40, you gave yourself permission to. Why is it that we put off doing what we really want to do the most so long? Yeah, no, great question. And I just want to mention to, to your point about France. Well, France and Germany are very different. I worked in both uh, countries. And France, obviously, you have a, a, a maximum hour work week, right? And I know that in Europe, people won't take phone calls and, and do work email on weekends, whereas that's not so much the case elsewhere. So I know Europe is a little different in terms of work-life balance. Coming to your question, why, why do we take so long to get around to doing what we need to do? I'll speak about my particular case and then the general idea that I have. In my particular case, I was an immigrant in the US. I was on a work permit. I actually had no choice because my ability to live in the country depended on me working a full-time job. And so if I had tried to give it up sooner, I, I would have had to leave the country anyways. And so I basically waited till, obviously I got my green card. I was taking writing workshops here and there, but 
like you said, it was not something that was my full-time thing. It was something I did on weekends, evenings. And then after I turned 40, I, I would obviously become a citizen already. And I thought, okay, if not now, when? And even then it took a certain precipitating event at my then workplace for me to say, okay, I'm done. I was in Silicon Valley. I'd been there about six, seven years. I just hit that burnout phase. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> you know. So that was my reason. Even then it took me a while from 2012, when I gave up the corporate place to 2014, when I moved back to India, two years of doing other things before I put my head down and said, that's it. I have other friends who are writers or wanting to be writers, but have full-time jobs or are taking care of families. And I think this is more the case with women than it is with men. And I think that's, again, because we are conditioned perhaps to be more practical, to put our family responsibilities and other responsibilities first. Anything that's a personal thing, whether it's our personal health, whether it's writing or art, whatever, we tend to see that as not essential. And so we end up putting it, you know, to the side. I think it's it's two reasons. One is the practical reason of one, needing a full-time job. And two is our conditioning, particularly as women, no matter which culture you're from. I've got white writer friends who have full-time jobs and keep telling me, oh, I'd love to write. I teach writing. I teach creative writing. And I would say almost all the men and women who take my courses have, have other jobs. They're doing these on evenings and weekends, and they're hoping that they'll learn the craft and then get good enough and eventually write a book. So I think with the arts, it's seen as this non-essential thing, which is terrible, but yeah. I wanted to ask you about something that you just touched on a bit. As a Desi woman myself, actually, I've noticed within Indian and American society, they're both rooted in patriarchy, sexism, classism, casteism. Have you compared your experiences in both countries and used kind of that dichotomous identity to shape your writing at all? Well, I think it does shape my writing all the time. I, I feel that any of my writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, will always have those intersecting issues because the issues that you just said, all the isms, they don't exist in isolation, right? Patriarchy is such that classism and sexism and casteism are all intersecting. And so to me, it's the intersectionality that adds to the complexity of our identities and who we are. And in fact, so there's a couple of stories in the book where you've got a Muslim guy from a minority community. And though he is a man from a minority community, he too has a certain casteist view of the lower caste untouchable. And that's how it is in India. So you can't say, oh, just because one person is from a minority community, they're going to be open-minded towards every minority community. That's not how it happens, right? And, and the same goes for women. Just because she X, X is a woman, she will understand sexism and she will not be sexist herself. Well, we have a lot of internalized misogyny and sexism. So because of the way we've been raised in patriarchal cultures. So I, I do think, I hope that I bring all of that complexity and I don't create two-dimensional characters because I believe the intersectionality is what makes us all very complex and 
what makes it hard for us to let go of some of these biases. And, and I've certainly, going back to India, opened my eyes to my own biases, made me see myself in a different way. And that's what, when you move from one culture to another, that's what happens. And then when I come back to the US, I see myself a little differently again. So I do think that the patriarchal culture creates these intersectionalities. And I struggle, I'll be honest with you, Dia, when we talk about writing, they see writing by diaspora writers, people who've grown up here. And sometimes they will, because they've read a lot or they've traveled on vacation to India or whatever, they'll write stories or novels which don't fully understand these intersectional issues. I've read much lauded books. And when I say much lauded, I mean the New York Times has gushed over it or Time Magazine or Oprah, where the writer hasn't been able to give us that intersectional view, where they've given readers, Western readers, the stereotypes and tropes that are expected. And because they're expected, they get lauded because, oh, you checked off the slums box, you checked off the arranged marriage box, you checked off this box. Great, that's what we want in a book from India. Perfect. Well, that's a great book. And unfortunately, that's what sells. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's also, to answer your question about the patriarchy and how it manifests, it manifests in the publishing gatekeeping system as well. I mean, given your unique perspective, I was wondering what you feel are unspoken, not exactly the same as a, a caste system in America, but there are different levels. There is a kind of class system that I understand, and maybe there's more mobility. But from your point of view, maybe people don't realize they have a class system there. Well, I mean, I do think you're right. We do have a class system. And I think the race and class issues in the US, the, the way they intersect, race, class, and gender issues, the way those intersect very much mirror how caste, class, and gender intersected India. And in fact, in this collection, my first story, it starts off, and, and that one is about racism, and the, and it's set in the, in the US. And my last story is set in India, and it's about casteism. And so I was hoping that I did that in a way to show the parallels, if you like, that we have similar prejudices and, and challenges. And, and it manifests as race and class, and sexism for that matter. But yeah, we certainly, to your point in the US, there is more mobility for sure. But again, it's not that easy. You see, even now, I look at just the publishing world now, because I'm now part of the publishing worlds, and I look at the elitism and the classism we have in the publishing world. This is unspoken, nobody says these things, but having an MFA from a recognized university. Over the weekend, I shared a very good article from Public Books, where this group of people at a university did a study, and they looked at literary prizes awarded over the last 20 years or more. And what they found was that 50% of the literary prizes went to writers from the top 15 MFA universities. 50%. And then, and then book contracts as well. And yes, there are more writers of color, but again, those writers that there's, even within the, right, the, the broad group of writers of color, there's a spectrum. 
There are those writers of color who've managed to go to Iowa and Harvard and Yale, and they are elevated more than these other writers of color. So classism and elitism is very much part of the whole equation here in the US too. Yes, I think so. And I would hope that the prize giving is done blind, but obviously there are biographies that are known and there are friendships that are formed. And, you know, it's interesting because we work with universities, which I love doing. And I think it's supposed to be about diversity of voices and diversity of experiences and opening the mind. But sometimes people go to universities to find out what they feel they've already know or their pre-professional schools are. And I was wondering what you felt about as much as it's important to learn the skills. Some people have said to me, oh, there's a kind of sound of fiction that might come out of an MFA program. Yeah, no, that's been a long running thing where people, they call it the MFA factory to be somewhat um, negative about it, right? They say that everybody comes out sounding the same. And I mean, I think there's some truth to it, but it's, it's better than it used to be, let's put it that way. There was a time when we had a lot of the same kind of writing coming out of certain MFAs. And I think that's changed a lot over the years because we've now got more diverse faculty. I think that makes a huge difference, right? And I'm certainly a big proponent. I mean, I teach, I don't teach in an MFA, but I do teach writing. So I'm certainly a big proponent of going and educating and learning skills from people who can teach them to us. I just, in terms of prizes though, I think the whole prize giving culture is a whole different animal because it's, it's not done blind. The reason being books when they come out are so hyped. And then when they're submitted to awards, by the time they get there, we, people already know who the book is by, even if you take the name off of it, people know. And especially the big awards where they do declare who's on the jury, as well as which books get to the longest and shortest stage. So I do think biases don't come out altogether of the award prize giving process. You can't, you know, get rid of that unless you have some prizes that do something different, like they'll have hundreds of booksellers and librarians as opposed to famous writers on the jury. And that's a whole different ballgame. I think this comes back to there is elitism, classism in the publishing world, sexism too, but it's not as bad now. I think we've had this last year has been a banner year, I would say, for Black women writers. Even the Black women writers themselves have been saying how they're having a moment, which is great. It's long overdue. So, yeah. Uh, but you brought up something which is interesting, is that while there is this diversity of voices, as a writer of color might be expected to be a cultural translator. So the mm -hmm. burden on you is to be more of a representative than say if one is of a white majority, I'm just freely, you know, using one's imagination and not having to define one's whole culture or community. And so that becomes something else that can be limiting. I think these questions are interesting about culture and identity, mm -hmm. but then there's also, I want to be creative here and I don't want to have to just explain my culture to you. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's very much what Matthew Salaces in his latest craft book, Craft in the Real World, he talks about that that everybody writes for a certain audience and you have to be aware of who you're writing for. And are you writing for somebody of a different culture and community and, and a different readership or are you writing for people like yourself? And there's nothing wrong with either, but I think being aware of who you're writing for then helps you define how you want to write. I know that 
when I was writing these short stories, I wasn't thinking of a Western reader. I wrote stories about the things that were keeping me up at night. I wanted to understand. Stories always start with questions for me. And so my first reader is me, you know? And then from there, by extension, people like me, and then anybody else who, would, who finds something that resonates for them. I know that means that I'm not going to get the big book contract for that reason, because not everybody's gonna be interested in the questions I'm interested in, simple as that. But there are people who say they want to write to a Western readership. They want to get into bookstores. And I, I follow a lot of writers on Twitter and I'm amazed how much they are just so happy when they get to go into a bookstore and hold their book up. And it's like, oh, my book is in a bookstore. Or if there's a review in some big venue, oh, this is a life dream come true. And okay, well, that's their dream. Nothing against it. If that's their dream, then they are writing for that audience, right? And if they're writing for that audience, they will be writing to the expectations of that audience. That's not how I see writing. I came to writing later in life. For me, it, it, it's not about getting into those. That's not what it's about. It's about me trying to understand things that keep me up at night. So again, I think what's important is understand who your audience is. Know who your audience is, as Matthew Salasis says. And then you write to your audience. And if writing to your audience means you're going to want to check off certain boxes, then that's what you do. I'm a different kind of writer. And there are other different kinds of writers out there. So, I mean, I love how Disha Filio, who, whose short story collection, debut collection, pretty much swept all the awards in 2020. And she's always said she's written for Black women like her. And yet, look, she won all the awards. So that's encouraging <laughs> that you can still write for your community and still find a wider readership. After hearing Jenny Putt talk so passionately about her work and her journey towards becoming an author full-time, I feel immensely inspired to prioritize my own passions. My name is Dia Basu, and I'm a psychology major with a minor in Child and Adolescent Mental Health Studies at New York University. I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants and have grown up my whole life in the U.S. Jenny's story makes me think a lot about my own parents, about this immigrant mindset where climbing up the ladder of corporate America becomes a necessity because it is a part of assimilation and ultimate survival. My parents came to America in search of stability and opportunity for their future family, the American dream. But at what point is it okay to start prioritizing yourself and your interests? Is it possible to leave a life of stability for the uncertain path of passion? These are things I want for my parents. I want them to be able to live life knowing they have options, the way that I am so privileged to live, thanks to them. Jenny's story of leaving an executive position in corporate life to pursue her dreams of writing for a living shows that if you can shift your mindset and be ready to experience the hardships that come with starting fresh, it is never too late to pursue your lifelong dreams. I love how Jenny not only pursued her passion, but also used her new career path to bring the often underrepresented South Asian woman voice to the world of literature. With her Desi Books podcast, she highlights hundreds of South Asian female writers and the authentic stories they have that come with being from this marginalized community. 
She truly believes that the road to representation starts with South Asian people making the conscious effort to read South Asian writers, and I couldn't agree more. We must start within the community to be able to truly branch out. With her book, Each of Us Killers, Jenny sheds light on the neglected stories of working class people in various professions, addressing the societal shortcomings that come from patriarchal societies like the US and India. Through my conversation with Jenny, I feel motivated to chase after my passions and dig deeper into my roots. As you said, some of the Desi representation we have in literature is often a misrepresentation or stereotypes, but nevertheless, there is still a major underrepresentation of Desi authors in the community and in our country's literary canon because it's mostly white male authors still. So why do you think there is a lack of representation in mainstream media and what ways can we benefit young Americans with these nuanced perspectives that we have as Desi women? Yeah, I love this question, Leah, because this is my soapbox with the podcast and, and everything. This is why I do what I do in terms of the advocacy and, and literary citizenship, because when I first came to the U.S. and start, I, I applied to and dropped out of two MFAs by two, around 2000, which was ages ago, I know. But back then, more than 20 years ago, we didn't have as much diverse faculty. And some of the work that I was writing didn't quite fit into that kind of mold. And so I ended up dropping out. And we do have certain Desi women writers get onto course curricula, but it ends up being the ones that write mostly to Western readership. So you'll have a Jampalahiri, for example, and her writing is beautiful, but she's writing about a certain elite educated immigrant Bengali culture, which does exist, of course, but she does check off all the tropes of, oh, the sad and lonely immigrant and all of these, whereas, and I keep thinking, well, what about the immigrant who comes to the, you know, the Desi immigrant who came here with nothing in their pocket and then built a whole empire? Where did that immigrant go? Because there's a lot of those. There's a lot of Desi immigrants adding to the economy of this country, and we don't hear enough stories about them. We hear about the ones who are so sad and missing home and they're cooking things and the recipes are reminding them of something back home. And you get these nostalgia dripping stories of immigrants. And so I think, I think why we don't have enough representation is also to do with, I think, the South Asian community sort of being the invisible minority. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I'll give you one simple example. This last month was AAPI month, right? Asian American Pacific Heritage Month. And you see a lot of these reading lists. Oh, for AAPI month, read these books by Asian American writers. And then you scroll down the list and there's East Asian, there's other kinds of Asian, and there's no South Asian. And I think, well, wait a minute. There are a lot of South Asian writers. You just go to my podcast website and look at the 87 plus books out this year alone. And that's not even all of them. And I think, how, how is that? When my book came out, I talked to some folks about my book too. Oh yeah, I've read Arundhati Roy and Salman Rushdie because those are the only big name writers that they know. I think it starts with our own community. It starts with our own community recognizing and uplifting our own writers. I see some of our writers, for example, they see writers doing book reviews or doing interviews. 
and they will not cite a single South Asian writer. The citations, the quotes are all other writers. And I'm thinking, what, you could not find one South Asian writer quote worth adding to your book review, worth adding to this, this essay that you wrote, this literary essay? So it really has to start with us. It really, I am a firm believer in this. And, and a rising tide will lift all boats. And so we start uplifting our community. That will help others see. I'm not going to go and blame other communities for not reading South Asian writing if my own community isn't doing it. So I'm going to say it starts at home. Let's all start reading and uplifting and mentioning our writers' works. We have a lot of literary traditions that go back to ancient times. We have folk tales, we have mythology, we have oral traditions. We have a rich, vast array of languages that are now, a lot of them are getting translated into English, books that are getting translated. We have so much rich cultural heritage to draw on and we don't. So that's my platform. That's why I do the podcast. And, and speaking of folklore and translation, I, I know you have a work in progress. I don't know how much you would like to share about that. And also you're a translator. And I wonder how that informs you as a writer. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't plan, I'm an accidental translator. I didn't plan to be one. I began translating stories from Gujarati, which is the language that we speak at home, I grew up with, because I have nieces and nephews who born and raised in the US and don't speak the language. So I was translating for them. And then this literary agent said, oh, you should just do the whole book and everything. And that's how it started. But to me, what drew me, I didn't study the language because I went to an English school in India. I didn't study the language. I learned it at home from my mother. She loved to read Gujarati literature. And so she would bring me on and I would start to read her books. And what I find when I read and translate from another language, it brings me closer to my culture. And it helps me see, I, because I'm reading from a culture that I'm, not living in right now I'm, I'm not there and so it's a way for me to connect back to my roots it's a way for me to see myself part of myself in there the translation is a way for me to connect to my roots that's the most important thing and so I'll never stop doing it but I know I have a lot to learn because it's a very complex and difficult thing it's not just converting from source language to target language there's all kinds of cultural nuances that you just can't translate certain things, certain idioms and certain things just don't carry over. And so I believe from the translator friends who've said that it's a lifelong process, but I like that. I like the complexity of always learning every new translation I do. I'm learning something new about the craft of writing as well, because when you interrogate a text to translate it, you are recreating it you are co-creating it with the author in a way. And because you're co-creating, it's a creative process and you're co-creating, you are questioning every word choice. And, and I think that helps me become a close reader. It helps me become a better editor of my own writing. And so I think the translation certainly is a good skill to have as a creative writer. Yeah. 
I think definitely that uh, translation is writing and it's an interpretive art, like acting is, you're inhabiting a voice and taking on the characters. And if you don't do it convincingly, it could be like uh, a dead uh, script or it doesn't come to life. So I'm very curious about that. People who in school you were using English or maybe a combined, maybe something else in the schoolyard, but you're language at home, your intimate family voice, who you were. That's interesting dichotomy so that when you write, and now are you writing in English? I only write in English. I translate from Gujarati, but I, and I can write letters and things, but I'm not a whole book. I, I wouldn't dare at this stage yet. Yeah, well, it's it's a very interesting dichotomy. I have also interviewed writers that won't be writing in their, what was their mother tongue, or they have that dichotomy. What is that like then when anything that you would say in Gujarati, oh, it's not going to be your bureaucratic or school language. It's going to be something very intimate and full of emotion. Mm -hmm. Is your own writing process then sort of like a translation, like where you think about something and then you kind of, but I can say this in English this way. No, actually, what it, it's the opposite, because I think that all my writing and thinking started in English. The, the translation came after. And also, I grew up in a very polyglot environment because I lived in the city of Bombay. So what happened is in school, we had English. At home, we had Gujarati. And outside the home, we had Hindi and Marathi. And Hindi was a language we also learned at school. It was a second language that we had to learn. So I grew up with four languages around me. My husband right now, he and I speak Hindi, right? So we don't even speak because he's not Gujarati. So we have a third language there. But even when I speak Hindi, sometimes I have to think in English and then say it in Hindi. And then he'll suddenly turn around and say, that didn't sound right what you just said. <laughs> you know. So I think a, a lot of people in India who live in the urban areas, like, like I did, they grow up in a sort of polyglot environment anyways. They'll grow up with multiple languages, and a lot of them end up writing mostly in English. They'll be able to read in another language. They'll watch movies, listen to songs, communicate, but they write mostly. I I know it's a very strange thing. It's very strange, for example, that we go and watch a Hindi movie, and then a movie reviewer in India will write the review of the Hindi movie, but in English, right? And then some things don't translate. And you can tell, well, this reviewer ha- didn't quite get the movie because it was in Hindi and he's trying to tell you what. So I, it's, it's this weird, it's this dichotomy of the language you're thinking in versus the language you're writing in versus the language you're actually speaking about or communicating about. I also think what's very fascinating and for people who visit or hear uh, people from India or, or from other cultures where English has come to live, found its home, it's in some ways very articulate and and sometimes it's like traveling back in time because there's some expressions that are just preserved. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to your point, because of the colonial legacy or hangover, whichever word you prefer. I've always said, by the way, that English is also an Indian language. Because after the British left, we adopted English and made it our own. And if you're in India, Indian English is going to be, it's got its own slang. It's got its own little dialect or lingo, if you like. And I try wherever I can, if I've got a character in in my story, it's in India, and especially in a city like Bombay or Delhi, I want them to speak that Indian English. It's a different dialect. It's almost like here, 
if I'm writing a story set in the US, someone in California is going to talk very differently than somebody down in Mississippi. They're both speaking American English, but they're very different ways of speaking American English. And the same way, English spoken in Bombay is going to be very different from English spoken by one of Jhumpa Lahiri's characters in New Jersey. <laughs> it's different. So the textures are different, but yeah, it's an Indian language. I very much feel that. I feel the same way. I mean, I'm part Irish, so I lived many years mm. in Ireland, and uh, I feel the same way. And the the way Irish use English can be really fascinating. And sometimes, as the same in India, it can kind of sometimes put English people to shame. Because <laughs> you have the weapon, and it can be foisted against them because you kind of take someone's country and you occupy it. But they found a, a strength in the language and and made it say different things or made it conceal things in its... Yeah, I mean, you know, I lived in Scotland for two years and in Inverness, when I first got there, I was working there. My boss says to me, we talked, I said, oh, am I going to have trouble with Scottish? And he said, we don't speak Scottish here. We speak the Queen's English and we speak it better than the English people. So I was like, put in my place because Scotland and, and England, they've had their centuries old conflict and he's like we don't speak scottish we speak the queen's english okay <laughs> so I, I i hear you when you what you're saying about irish and ireland and yeah and and dia also you at home you spoke bengali and hindi and what are some of what are the what pleasures did you have in those languages and what were some things what are some of those untranslatable things I think it's a little bit different for me because I'm a daughter of two Indian immigrants. So I kind of have the dichotomous Indian American identity to deal with as well. So I did find in the household, I use a lot of kind of slang and terms that we only know in our household. And then as soon as you leave the home, that all goes away and you can't use it with your friends or in school and that kind of thing. So it's sometimes a struggle when almost you have to translate your thoughts, your inner familial thoughts to American English. And that's kind of what you were talking about, Jenny, with American English. I feel like I have a inner Indian English or Hanglish is what my parents call it mm -hmm. um, yeah. in my head as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes what happens is when we can't translate, we end up watering it down, right? We were talking earlier about diaspora writers who write books set in India. I find sometimes those books rather sterile and rather watered down because they are not getting the color and in, in the, the textures of the culture. They've been there on vacation for two weeks every few years and they haven't picked up those things. And so to your point, I, I do think that even within here in the, in the US, the Indian subcultures that we have, like I live in Dallas, Texas, and there's a lot of Indian people here, different communities. And when we come together for, you know, dinners or whatever, it's just this whole riotous mess of language, you know, because we're all speaking in bits of this language and bits of that language and English. And yeah, it's because there are times, like you said, you just can't say something you want to say in English. I will never understand it the way you understand it or the way Adia understands it. But there's some things, uh, maybe those books that are written half towards different communities, different cultures, that you can't translate, like the textures and colors, as you say, 
for American society it has a diversity of voices, but at the same time, mostly, except not at home, but mostly it speaks one a dialect of English, mm-hmm. not even like different dialects. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that America is homogenous, but in the capitalism, the marketing culture, one city can resemble a lot others. So right. we try to describe what are the experiences within India. It's almost hard to take in, I think, for certain people. It, it is, it is. And for example, to your point, the first story that I wrote in this book, it's set in Michigan. The voices are all the white characters. I intentionally did not give the Indian character a voice. He's, he's dead in the story anyways. I lived in Michigan for seven years. There's a lot of Dutch ancestry. And so if you've lived there long enough and if you have an ear for language, you're going to pick up how certain things are said and how they end questions, sentences in certain ways. And so I wanted to make sure that I even had names, last names that were off that Dutch ancestry, for example, because in Southwest Michigan, you have a lot of those. There's even a town called Holland, Michigan, right there. And so I wanted to make sure that I was bringing that out because to your point, a lot of people don't bring up these differences, even in the US, but they're there. If we listen close enough, they're there. I spent a lot of time in the South of the US, North Carolina, and then I went up North to Pennsylvania and lived there and worked there. And my gosh, If you just listen close to the language, it's very different. North Carolina people versus Pennsylvania. So yeah, I I just think you're right that the way it's marketed or the way it's edited, eventually it sounds homogenous. But on the ground, when you go and talk to people and you listen to the voices and language, there are differences. Yes, and that's what fiction, I think, really helps us remember. It's a space for nuanced thinking, as much as marketing maybe wants to push us all into the same mold as consumers. Books are a place where we can examine the world, hear those differences and celebrate them and just respect it for those beautiful combinations of uh, culture that, that we have all around us. I guess in closing, we think a lot about the future and education, the importance of the arts and um, the things in society that we'd like to change. And what are some of those things for you as you think about the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think I've reached an age where I feel I'm part jaded, but I'm part still optimistic. And what I mean by that is I, I know that I'm happiest when I'm modeling the behavior I want to see in the world. So if I want to see more South Asian writing or books in the world, then I feel like, okay, I must promote and publicize and support that. In the end, though, I think what we all want is more diversity. And not just because it's a buzzword, but because the diversity helps us all become culturally more tolerant of each other, more accepting of each other if we see and understand that difference is what makes us special, that difference isn't what divides us, but it makes us unique and special. And as writers and artists, it's those differences that draw us to each other. We see something different with it. Oh, like when I go to a certain new place and I'm listening to the language and I'm just hearing all these rich textures and I'm like, oh, I love this place. I love being here. And so I just feel like the more diversity we can promote and, and kind of the work you're doing, I mean, a huge project that you're doing and all the, the diversity of all the artists and it's multidisciplinary what you're doing. You're not just talking to writers like me. To me, the scope, we should have more of that kind of stuff. So to me, one utopian 
thing that would be amazing is what you do with all the universities and everything. So I don't know where, how far I can go with the podcast. I have people telling me, oh, you should do this. You should do a lit fest and do that. And I think until and unless I can do it in a way that really has an impact, I'm going to have to grow it slowly, but I'm not going to just rush into doing things just for the heck of it, right? I mean, it has to have some impact if I'm going to do it. I would love to see a world where, as Dia was saying, South Asian literature by women writers will show up on course curricula, that we have books about more than just the usual tropes that people expect from South Asian literature. So those are the things that I think would just make us culturally more tolerant of our world and of our people. That's a very important goal to have. Stories do really make a difference because, as you say, they allow us to accept experiences that we might not see and and hear from those with the the most to say might have had experiences in their life that make them be quiet and make them hold back, but they have sometimes the greatest wisdom to share. And you really bring that out in, in this collection and in others to come. I know you have this uh, book project. I'm not sure the shape it's taking. No, it's still in progress. At this point, it's historical fiction. I don't even know if it will ever find a home, but I'm writing it because I am compelled to bring this character to life because history has sidelined her and they've forgotten her and I think she was special in medieval India and as usual women don't get as much space in the history textbooks right because they don't win battles they don't go and fight wars but they do other things and those are just as important so yes that's the work in progress but we'll see where it goes. (laughs) These things take time, they need to settle, but it's certainly been worth the wait in terms of your germination and and journey as a writer. It's also a great example to those who've been perhaps holding back on their dreams, all those immigrants who, you know, feel like they have to be the most responsible ones and can't seize or become the artists that they are. So that's Mm -hmm. also a great tale of inspiring uh, story for for us to follow. So I want to thank you, Jenny Bat, for inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing these stories about our working lives, culture, invisible communities, immigrants, and what gives a life meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk and Dia Basu with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast with Dia Basu. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.